Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Welcome to today's podcast. Our theme for this year's Lent is My Story, helping us all to become more aware of the ways our personal faith stories intersect with God's story in scripture. Throughout this season, we are introducing you to members of our church family and asking them to tell us a little about their stories. My name is Gail Lippincott, and I serve on the Communications and Media Committee at First Church. I'm pleased to introduce you to my friend and colleague and mentor, John Richard, and I'm looking forward to this conversation and hearing your story. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gail. Tell us a little about yourself and ways you're connected to or involved at First Church Orlando. Well, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, grew up in Epworth Church, which was at that point the largest Methodist church in the Florida in the Virginia Conference, and um, was a fourth generation on what was then called the official board. Um, I... Uh, Went to Washington Lake, undergraduate and master's degree from Old Dominion, then to Oxford for some additional graduate work in ancient history. And I was actually at Oxford when my father died and I returned to Norfolk and became by default a banker, stayed for 17 years and at age 40 uh, was able to um, uh, take early retirement. We sold the bank actually to SunTrust and at that point, I did what all good people in Virginia who retired do. I moved to Florida. Um, fortunately, um, to Orlando, I had gotten my sister a blind date with my best friend and fraternity brother. She was at uh, Randolph Lincoln Women's College in Lynchburg, which is a Methodist school, and got her blind date with my uh, best friend, Drew Thomas, who was from Orlando. And so when I moved to Orlando, I came to church with them. They were members of First Church, reared their family here. And uh, so it was very natural to continue with family at First Church. That was 1988. And um, at that point, I was living in Orlando. Mostly had a condo downtown, but also had a beach house in St. Augustine. So I was traveling back and forth and spent a lot of time at um, Grace Church in St. Augustine and First Church Orlando. And uh, then after four, three or four years, sold the house in St. Augustine and became full-time Orlando and started my new faith journey um, when uh, uh, I discovered the Jesus Seminar and Historical Jesus Program. And that's, that's where we p- pick up from First Church. <laughs> right. So, uh, well, you and I both are from the Virginia, Norfolk area, but our stories are so different. You've related some of your uh, your life history to the new class, which is how I know you. And uh, I was a Navy brat living in Virginia, so we, we could not have had more different upbringings. And here we are at First Church. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how your spiritual journey began then? Do you want to start with here or? Well, I'll say you know, that I, I started a typical 
Methodist kid, um, you know, we went to church every Sunday. Um, I sat generally with my grandparents. Um, I had an uncle who was a church musician, a minister of music at a, another large Methodist church, and started taking piano when I was six. As soon as I was big enough to reach the pedals, I switched to organ. So my adventure in the church was many, many, many afternoons on an organ bench in the afternoon after school. And that's where I think my spiritual life really began was church music uh, in a wonderful 19th century building with a magnificent organ and big Tiffany windows. And every day after school was spent in that setting. And you, uh, you can't ignore that. So that's, were, you, that's, were you taking lessons on that organ or yes, were you the, the ministry practicing? Music, yeah, the minister of music at that church was um, teaching me at that point. And, um, and I was at church literally every day because I practiced every day. So that was part of the spiritual. Um, uh, oh, and that meant being in contact with the people who, who worked there and getting to be, you know, um, knowing the ministers and the entire staff. Um, they had to put up with me and I had to... <laughs> <laughs> be quiet sometimes when they didn't want me to play quite as loud as I wanted to. But I'm sure that was a beautiful setting, great acoustics, and then with the sunlight streaming through the uh, stained glass. And that's what I said. I, I, I one day, um, sort of after working on a, a Franck piece and turned around and looked into this Tiffany window of the uh, resurrection, and I think that's when I, uh, uh, truly that's the guy, Told people, yeah, you know, I found God on an organ bench. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's still true. So, how would you describe God starting from that young well, age? And then, and then we fast forward. You know, we go through college and all that. And then, when I got to Orlando, I um, uh, got interested in the Jesus Seminar, which was a group of two hundred so scholars on the West Coast who were examining what we know about Jesus as a person. And my background is history. I have a master's degree in ancient history. And um, uh, the Jesus Seminar was saying, if our claim as Christians is that Jesus was an historic figure who lived and walked amongst us, what do we know about the Jesus of history as well as the Jesus of faith and how do those, do those interact? And luckily, just kind of by chance, some of my friends at the Jesus Seminar at um, in California, said, well, you ought to be in touch with Don Crossan. Uh, he's just moved to Claremont, and I thought that meant Claremont, California, but it was Claremont, Florida. And simultaneously at this time, I was in a disciple Bible study class with 12 other members of First Church, led by Charles Pennington. And I was reading all this stuff about the historic Jesus at the same time we're taking traditional good Methodist theology in uh, Disciple One Bible class. And at the end of that year, the class said, we will stay together for another year if you will talk with us about what you're learning from the Jesus in our historic Jesus. And I said, fine. And so that was May. And I then asked Dom to have lunch with me in Winter Park. And we sat down and four hours later, we got up um, and we decided that he who had taught, um, Dom Croston, by the way, is um, a professor of... Um, New Testament at DePaul University, the largest Catholic university in America, and is um, retired. Was that the 
Was that the first time you'd met him then at lunch? Or? At lunch. We, we talked on the telephone and decided we'd have lunch at the um, wow. Winter Park Gardens. And um, uh, it was supposed to be an hour, and it was four hours later. We decided that um, he would, in fact, engage me in a private tutorial. Um, uh, my work at Oxford taught me how to do tutorial work, and Dom has two doctorates, one from the National University of Ireland, Mammoth University, and also the Pontifical University of Rome. And we decided that um, uh, I told Dom, if I'm going to teach this class, I need to know what you know. And he kind of laughed and said, you know, 30 years as a, as a monk and priest, you have a long way to catch up. But that first meeting, he assigned me some work. He said, when you finished reading this stuff, call me and we'll talk about it. And when I got all the books and everything, it was 10,000 pages. And that's how my faith journey reignited from a demand from a great scholar who has since been the president of the uh, Society of Biblical Literature and, and Peter James called the foremost Jesus scholar in the world. Um, Dom, for 25 years, we have met and continue to meet. And he always says, the latest thing is, and you must read, and then I get another stack. And that's now literally hundreds of thousands of pages. And 30 years later, uh, my, my faith journey has been led primarily by Don Crossan, who um, is recognized, you know, as the former Jesus scholar in the world. Lucky me. <laughs> is that Jesus seminar still going on or was that what that was a particular time? It, 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 it still exists in a much reduced way. The other co-founder, Don, was one. And the other co-founder died, and they then went on to the Paul Seminar, and it still exists primarily as a publishing company in California. So it still exists, and there are fellows of the Jesus Seminar still around, but it, it no longer functions the way it really did, meeting quarterly and discussing every word Jesus said, and then voting on the authenticity historically of those words. Was the other co-founder Mark? So that's Ford? that's how that's. Now, Marxism was one of the fellows, and um, uh, uh, Robert Bork, um, no, that's the Supreme, um, he's been dead many years now, he taught at, he was taught at Emory, um, a good Methodist scholar was the other co-founder. Um, anyway, uh, uh, the Jesus and I continues to exist, but is no longer really active. So, so going along, your question was, you know, talking about God, Dominic is, is you know, most of what I say today is, is secondhand. Um, my job when we talked with Dominic was to take his scholarly work. Dom did not write for lay people. He wrote for other scholars. And my job was to translate the work of an Irish Catholic priest to make sense to an American Methodist congregation of lay people. And so um, my job is largely as I, almost as a translator to make sense of all this, that if you start reading Dom's books, he said 90% people get to page 50. And then you say, you know, this is too thick and too deep. Well, to me, that's where it really gets interesting. And, <laughs> and that's, that's my job. But, you know, in summarization a little bit, you know, um, how I describe God, um, and this is again from Dom's work, but something I agree with 100%, uh, because we do not, now, I think most of us view God as anthropomorphic as, as this sort of thing. It's some sort of being, 
and, and this being may in fact have character. And so I approach things as that God has three characteristics which I identify with. And I'm gonna talk about each one. The first characteristic of this God is compassion. He is a God of compassion. And that is just a word packed with all kinds of things. Compassion is not quite love. Love is, you know, I love you despite um, all of your problems or, or faults. Compassion is, I love you with all your faults and compassion. Yeah, if the compassion buys into your issues and does not judge them where love says in some ways, you know, I can love you despite uh, compassion is I, I love you with. And that's the nature of this God. And it goes back, the word, word compassion goes back to the Hebrew root word for womb and to womb, like the mother's womb. And that is the relationship with God, that the relationship with God is from our very beginning. It is womb-like. And it is unlike any other possible relationship, just as uh, we can never have another relationship like with our mother. We'll never have another relationship with God. So this womb-like relationship of compassion. Um, the uh, second com uh, characteristic of God is that he is just. And we have to get unpack this word a little bit because justice has two major forms. One is retributive justice, where you did something wrong to me and I'm gonna get justice, I'm going to see you take you to court or whatever. That retributive justice, um, which is not productive. The other is distributive justice. And I think that this God that I worship is a God of distributive justice, who primarily is interesting with everyone having enough I am not as radical as Jesus. He would say they almost have the same. I think that's going too far for our human nature, but it's not too far to reach to say that some of us can have more as long as all of us have enough. And, and, and that's what I'm talking about, a God of justice, of distributive justice. And the third, the third characteristic of, of my God is the God of nonviolence. And many of us have a little problem with this, um, but we deal with it in that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But there has to be a little more than that in, in that peace is the absence of war where nonviolence is, is far more than simply peace. And we get glimpses of Jesus in Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile and so forth. These things of of you know, violence is 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 you know, the great thing which, if we do not control it, will destroy us all. And so, if you, my God, is a God of compassion, justice, and nonviolence. And how does that work? Jesus, to me, is the incarnation. I use that word. Is that characteristic made flesh for us to see, watch, study, learn from, and because it is in fleshed body, it means that I, to some extent, can do it. It's not pie in the sky. If Jesus lived this life, then I can at least follow it, and I, again, don't like the word follow. I, I, I don't think Jesus had 
people with him. I think these are companions. I think these are companions of Jesus and his way of life and so forth. And I think that's one of those things that we can certainly look into as our leader. But to be companions of Jesus is far more important than to following him. So those are my three. I'm taking notes. I took your <laughs> historical Jesus class and loved it. And of course, every time you talk, I have to take notes. So I'm taking notes. And yes, yes. Well, well, so, this is, all those three characteristics. Let's, if you want to talk about this a little bit before I go on to some other things, which I don't want to get to. But um, after the interview, we'll talk more. Okay. Because, uh-huh. And and all of our phone conversations always end up with long ones. So I fully understand how your one hour lunch with um, Dom turned into four hours. Yeah. <laughs> no problem uh, with that. So that that is part of my faith journey. Um, uh, another question, which was in the group that was in, when do we feel close to God? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have to say that that is in worship and whenever I experience God's creation. Um, that is, you know, those are... Those are the mountaintop experiences. I think, I don't know, did you see the pictures I sent to you of my Tababuya tree? Yes. Oh my gosh. And when we were talking before you said you had, it was an uncle or someone would go into a florist shop and look around and say, God is gaudy. (laughs) And and I immediately sent you this picture of my yellow Tababuya tree. And I said, God is gaudy, look at this tree. Absolutely. And, and we have those mountaintop experiences, the seashores and mountains, but we also have them in worship. Yes, which we're not, they're not quite as good over, you know, Zoom or Facebook, but I have certainly been enjoying. Yeah, and and and, and worship um, is, you know, divided into a couple things uh, in the Methodist tradition. You know, um, preaching is certainly the reason the pulpit's in the middle of our congregation, and and in many Methodist church, the pulpit's in the middle, and many of them, of course, they have uh, the gospel and the uh, epistle side. In our church, it's not. If you measure it, the pulpit's in the middle, the altar is not. <laughs> but preaching is where we learn about God, and the other side of, of our worship is music. And as you know, my prejudice is hugely towards music. And I say, when I go into a worship service, preaching is where I learn about God. The music is where I experience God. And I mean that seriously. I have watched you after services when Linda's playing the postlude and you're sort of behind a column just listening. And and if you're sitting in where you can see me in the congregation, if the anthem is particularly me, you know, I simply close my eyes. I close out the world. Uh, isolate. I don't want to see what's happening. I want to hear. Right. You want to hear. I, I, I want to. I want to experience God through music, and that's one of my um, you know kind of idiosyncrasies. Uh, I will mention one of my further on talks about heroes. One of my heroes was a, a man named John Turner. John Turner was my organ tutor at Oxford, and he was also conveniently the organist at Glasgow Cathedral, the largest church in Scotland. And John Turner taught me how a liturgical musical service can be the most meaningful thing in your week. Mm. And uh, COVID has been the most wrenching things for those of us 
who have always looked forward to that one hour on Sunday morning where we are in God's presence. And uniquely, I think at First Church with our music and preachers have been uniquely inspiring. But that standard, which John Turner instilled upon me, um, you know, that, that it's got to be done right. And if it is done right, it is positively an incomparable experience. And, you know, we who take worship seriously must take it seriously. So I, that's that's a word to the congregation, which I don't expect everyone to understand or agree with. But <laughs> it, it, it is, again, a part of my fundamental faith statement is that profound worship is entirely possible and, in fact, a necessity. So, <laughs> Have you ever played our organ? Oh, many times. Okay. As you know, for 25 years, I came down every Wednesday afternoon to teach. And frequently, I uh, would come down an hour early and go in and play the organ. And um, it becomes increasingly difficult with a little bit of arthritis and a little bit of side problems. But no, it's one of those things that um, I still will sneak down occasionally. Uh, <laughs> are you not going to be? The, the, the issue now probably is, if you know, they moved Vance's office around the other side of the wall to the organ chamber. So you do not want to go in and do the trumpet on Shemad or the tuba <laughs> mirabilis with Vance his office, otherwise it will rattle his teeth. But um, <laughs> I never knew that. All right. <laughs> yeah, right on the other side of the organ chamber wall is Vance's office. Be aware of that if you're going down to play the organ. <laughs> All right. Well, and that used to be the music. Uh, oh no, it was the library, it was right? The library. It was the oh. library. Wow. Um, well, so has God ever felt distant? Um, yeah, I think a few times. Um, um, as I think everyone in the church knows, I'm gay, having been married in sanctuary. Um, as a late teenager, I had one of my experiences and, and, and felt a calling to the ministry and was told by our bishop, a great guy named James Garber, that he could not and would not ordain me. <laughs> um, so you've been a lay minister for these many, many years. Well, that was tough. Uh, fortunately, at that point, my minister at that point and this is going off key a little bit. My minister at that point was the Reverend Dr. Admiral Garrett, who was Rodney um, um, Wallace's boss. Uh, Dr. Garrett had been chief of chaplains, and when he retired, he came to Norfolk, of course, because Norfolk was the naval base. Yep. And the Reverend Dr. Admiral Garrett. <laughs> um, Very compassionately, very compassionate. Uh, said, you know, you have other gifts, use them. So. so he was one of your spiritual heroes, too. He's on my list. He's on your list. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes. Um, so then when or how have you experienced grace that right there through... Yeah, the Reverend Dr. Admiral Garrett through John Turner. 
through the beautiful, you know, nature, yeah. beauty and nature, beauty and music. Yeah, and this will come back to my heroes in a few moments because I was going to get to that. But, um, you know, people outside the church, Radom Crossan and John Turner, um, Dr. Garrett, um, the ones in the church, you know, Grace and, and meeting Charles Stopford, who when I started teaching the Historic Jesus class, uh, it was not universally <laughs> accepted. And some people went to Wayne Curry and said, you know, you can't do this. It's a radical and so forth. And Charles Stopford went to Wayne Curry. And you, many of you do know this, but um, Charles taught Wayne at Emory. Uh, when when Charles was teaching at Emory and, and Wayne was in, in divinity school and Charles told Wayne that, quote, I was safe. <laughs> <laughs> that I knew what I was talking about and that we needed to do this. So, so, so he was there. That was a real moment of grace when Charles Stopper went to Wayne Curry and I was allowed to actually teach the historic Jesus class. The other moments of grace when Gene Zimmerman uh, agreed to do my wedding. Um, uh, and Tom. Well, I say Tom is on the list there too. Gene agreed to do it first, and then I think Gene, uh, you know, the, the straight line we have to not forget is that Pulse took place four months before my wedding. Oh my gosh. And the transformation of First Church with the lapel pins, hundreds of them, which I gave out and so forth, and with Tom wearing a rainbow um, uh, stole and so forth, the straight line of the awakening to what we as a church were doing wrong, and the fact that Gene and Tom would risk their um, retirement by performing the sanctuary, and the fact that they went to the bishop in Lakeland and said, you know, we have a conflict in our vows. We have vowed to obey the discipline. We've also had vowed to be pastors and ministers to our congregation. And our conflict of vows dictate that we must do this way. Wow. That's grace. Yes. That's so um, uh, leaving this up, because I want to go on to you know, the, faith, the faith journey. I don't want to run out hey, of time Hey, who's, who's running this interview here? Uh, yeah, but I, I want to. Um, okay, well, go ahead. The faith journey then goes on, and the revelation of, 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 of progressive Christianity is this center of gravity. Uh, the, part of the reason I'm a Christian is not to get into heaven. The reason I'm a Christian is to help make God's kingdom come on earth. And this is a fundamental shift in Christianity, which is taking place in which many people, you know, don't fully grasp. And they don't have to. My mother would never have gotten this. She was a lifelong, you know, devout Christian. She would never understand that, you know, her good news with Jesus died for her sins. I've never considered that good news. I've never hoped I've done anything bad enough that Jesus had to die for me. You know, if that's the basis for this, then, then you know, I, I will accept it as other people's faith, but it's something, you know, 
I am here to help God's kingdom come on earth. And the eschatology, which I believe is not that God is going to repeal creation and do away with all men. The eschatology is what Dom calls collaborative eschatology. We working with God will make the old world, world disappear. And that's what we're here to do is the Methodist Church finally added to its thing, making disciples of, of, for Christ for the transformation of the world. That was added. And that's exactly right. That's the, the shift which I think we all need to do is for the transformation of the world. That's quite an activist stance. Well, it, 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 it's, it takes us from being cheerleaders for God, go do it. Right. And I'm going to paraphrase Desmond Tutu here. You know, the transformation of the world. Without God, we cannot. And without us, God will not transform the world. So we, we cannot get off the hook by cheerleading Waiting for God to do it, do it to us. Um, so, so, so the, the the world, the end of the world, the end of injustice, violence, uh, and compassion. You know, all those things will come together, and the great transformation is the realization that this kingdom of God on earth is open to all of us to anyone who's brave enough to live it, you can enter the kingdom of God here now and you know, in ourselves. And that is my faith journey um, to understand that, you know, be not afraid. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So do you have any closing, anything else you want to say? We've got a couple minutes. No, that, that's it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. If you could ask God one question, what would you ask? I would like him to try to explain the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, 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 it's one of those things I, I cannot get my hand, my head around it. As I've told many people, I'm more of a quadratarian, if anything. I think divine <laughs> wisdom, we've left out divine wisdom, the Sophia, the wisdom Sophia, woman. Sophia, the female, yes. The other, and I, 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 you know, I, I think it's one of the, the, the bad turns the church took was uh, emphasizing the Trinity. But again, <laughs> that's me, and I will not argue with anyone that it's not absolutely valid. It's just it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> okay. Well, John. Thank you so much for this great conversation and for sharing your story with us. I know our listeners have been blessed by hearing it. I have. And to those of you who are listening, I know you must have enjoyed hearing from John Richard. We hope you will keep listening to more great stories from our friends at Birch Church Orlando. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, 
we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.